Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Being president isn't fun anymore. After a week that saw the president unravel at the seams, he's now in Japan, where he'll get to do the fun stuff being president. A lavish banquet, golfing with Shinzo Abe, presenting a prestigious award at a sumo tournament, being on the receiving end of pomp and ceremony. It's likely a welcome break from having to do the other stuff, like acting like a grown-up and, you know, governing, both of which proved hard for him this week. Trump stormed out of a meeting with Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Chuck Schumer to discuss a $2 trillion infrastructure plan, one of his signature promises, because Pelosi hurt his feelings earlier. It was a great excuse to not work, the latest in a string of them. He used to complain about not being able to work because of the Mueller probe. That investigation is over, so he's insisting all the other investigations are why he can't work now. And I told Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, I want to do infrastructure. I want to do it more than you want to do it. I'd be really good at that. That's what I do. But you know what? You can't do it under these circumstances. So get these phony investigations over with. The very stable genius can't work under these circumstances. Circumstances being oversight, part of Congress's job, and manufactured crises of his own doing. Trump's run into obstacles in the work part of being presidenting before. Stuff like having to negotiate with party leaders, offer policy suggestions that are, you know, legal under the Constitution, and also following the law. Needless to say, he's found those technicalities annoying. Just yesterday, for example, a federal judge blocked him from using defense funds for his border wall, saying that money needs to be approved by Congress. Foiled again. Trump has relished the fun part of the job, the rallies, the parties, hearing his own staff sing his praises when prompted by him in front of the press. But his growing frustration at the work part of the job is leading some to believe he might be over it. As the president said, if you don't, um, if you don't stop investigating me, if you don't stop honoring your oath of office, I can't work with you. That's basically what he's saying. Maybe he wants to take a leave of absence. He is looking for every excuse. But now that... He was forced to actually say how he'd pay for it. He had to run away. This was a publicity stunt. Do you think he likes being president? I don't think he likes being president at all. I think he liked winning the presidency. Do you think he wants to get reelected? Do you think he ever do? I don't think I, I think psychologically, if he really got under the hood, I think he'd say, what am I doing? I'm in my 70s. Here's the deal. Trump doesn't want to be president anymore. I'm not sure he ever really wanted it. Sure, he loves the trappings of the presidency. He likes using the bully pulpit to 
threaten and intimidate and punish his opponents. He likes wielding his power and influence to incite his followers and test the loyalty of his subjects. But the job of being president, that wasn't ever what he was after. And now that the Democrats in the House have some power and are using it, he really doesn't want the job. And with Democrats dangling impeachment, he sees an exit ramp. It's a perfect one, too. He gets to go out the victim of a witch hunt, a conspiracy to oust an otherwise competent and successful leader who just wanted what was best for us. It is exactly what he hopes Democrats do. And secretly, I bet he's praying it saves him from a second term. But that's letting him off the hook too easy, frankly. He was elected to do a job and voters should decide whether he's doing it well or at all. That's what he doesn't want. In fact, the only thing he wants less than to keep having to do this job is for voters to take it away from him. Okay, joining me now to break this wild week down in Washington is former Clinton White House press secretary Joe Lockhart. Um, Joe, as someone who's worked in the White House side by side with a president who was also embattled during his presidency, what did you make of this week where Trump seemed to like hit a wall. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll give Trump this much. It makes it harder when, when Congress is doing their job, whether it's uh, <laughs> the traditional oversight uh, or even if it's a witch hunt, um, uh, which this isn't. Um, but it doesn't make it impossible. And it really does sort of draw a very stark contrast with when President Clinton was uh, under investigation and then through impeachment. He said all along, he was not going to get distracted by it. He didn't talk about it publicly. Anything he talked about, he talked about privately. And he said, I'm just going to go to do yeah. I'm going to go to work every day and do the people's business. Trump, on the other hand, can't talk about anything else. He's made himself the victim in chief, not the commander in chief, and now has taken it to its logical extreme and says, I'm not working until you stop investigating me. That's yeah. the, I think that first off, it's wrong. Secondly, it's really bad politics when you put yourself in front of the voters. Well, just to play devil's advocate, does Trump have a point, though, that with constant investigations and talk of impeachment, that any president would find these conditions difficult to work in? I'm sure Clinton did as well. Sure. And I think, you know, there's a simple remedy for it, which is he shouldn't have obstructed justice. Uh, uh, but, you know, he, he's done that now, so he's got to deal with it. Um, I think some of this is just because Republicans abdicated uh, responsibility for any mm -hmm. oversight yeah. uh, for the first two years of his presidency. So there was an enormous backlog of things that were going on that should have been investigated. And now, you know, now he's playing the card of him being persecuted. But, you know, I don't know that there's anyone who thinks being president is easy. Um, and it's yeah. particularly difficult for somebody with with Trump's uh, skills or lack thereof. Well, look, every president has parts of the job they don't love. Uh, Obama wasn't the best at dealing with Congress. It just wasn't his thing. Um, George H.W. wasn't wasn't a great orator. He wasn't great at selling himself or promoting himself, which is also part of the job. Um, but Trump seems to dislike most parts of the job because he can't just do what he wants. He seems sort of ill-suited to be president, at least in this country, like a democratic one with checks and balances and constraints on his power. Why would he want to keep doing it? 
Well, I mean, I think he's, uh, for the very same reason as he ran for president, because he's addicted to the attention. That's what he likes in the job. He likes the fact that he can send a tweet out at 6.30 in the morning and everyone in the world scurries around to try to interpret what's Donald Trump thinking. He's addicted to it. Yeah, he loves it. What he doesn't like and what distinguishes him from presidents before him is he doesn't like the actual work of governing because it's work. It involves, mm. you know, endless meetings. It involves reading briefing books. It involves <laughs> making very tough decisions as opposed to just saying, my gut tells me blank. And that's if you talk to all the people who've come out of the White House, that was their great uh, frustration and who worked mm. in the administration, which is you'd have very complicated issues. The staff would do the work to try to bring a decision to him. And it didn't matter what the facts were. He'd say, I, I just think that this is the right way. And, you know, he, he, he's driven off a lot of policy cliffs. Yeah. Well, look, Donald Trump is not the first person to run for president for the sake of vanity. He's not the first politician that got into it because of a big ego. I'm wondering if you have any lessons or advice to, I don't know, the 23 Democrats running, some of whom must know they can't actually become president, um, that there's actually a job behind this that's really hard and really serious and that this shouldn't just be about stroking your own ego. Yeah, listen, I think there's there's certainly people in the race right now who are, are in the race either to make a policy point or to increase their stature, and stature translates to power in Washington. But I don't see anybody in the in the Democratic field, and I didn't see that many people in the Republican field last time who didn't who didn't want the job because they thought they could do something with the government. They could make change. They could make people's lives better. Trump only only cares about his life, mm. um, and he, that's and and that what is what probably makes the burden of having the job to be crushing for him. Because, you know, every day people are saying, well, what are you doing for me? And he, he, that's just not something he's used to. Well, I got to get your take on the press conference in which he cajoled his advisors to say something nice about him in front of the press. When you saw his various spokespeople, Sarah Sanders, Kellyanne, um, even Hogan Gidley, who was attesting to Trump's behavior in a meeting he did not attend, when you saw them praising yes. the president on command, what did you think as a former press secretary? I, I thought we were in uh, North Korea or we were in the Kremlin or we were in Saudi Arabia where uh, a king was sitting upon the throne and his, uh, his, his servants were at his feet, you know, uh, serving him. It was humiliating for the people in the room. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I told people earlier in the week that most of them probably walked out and said, thank God I wasn't, I wasn't under oath there because then I would have really had a problem. Um, well, that's a very generous way of looking at it. I hope that they were embarrassed. I'm not so sure. <laughs> Joe Lockhart, thanks as always. Yeah. All right. There's a lot wrong with the president tweeting manipulated video of anyone, let alone the highest ranking woman in elected office. But it's part of a continued pattern. I'll explain what I mean next. You think Nancy's the same as she was? She's not. That was President Trump Friday on the tail end of a three-day smear campaign against Speaker Pelosi. The surreal chain of events also had the president and his allies tweeting a mashup of Pelosi that was altered to make it look as if she is drunk or slurring her words. Why? Because she hurt his feelings. 
It culminated with this display on Thursday during a press conference that was supposed to be about aid for farmers. You had the uh, the group, crying Chuck, crazy Nancy. I tell you what, I've been watching her, and I have I have been watching her for a long period of time. She's not the same person. Uh, she's lost it. It was sad when I watched Nancy all moving, the movement and the hands and the craziness. And I watched it. That's, by the way, a person that's got some problems. Never mind the rich irony that the president frequently mispronounces and misspells words and flails his hands around during speeches and often speaks in incomplete non sequiturs. No, we're meant to take seriously that Nancy Pelosi, who has manhandled Trump in nearly every political battle, is losing it. If that feels a little sexist, it's meant to. This is familiar territory for Trump, who prefers nicknames for his male opponents, but often saves the more visceral and visual insults for his female foes, like Megyn Kelly, Carly Fiorina, or Mika Brzezinski. And that makes what Trump's right-hand gal, Kellyanne Conway, said this week about Pelosi even more ridiculous. She treats me as she might treat her maid or her pilots or makeup artists or her... Um, wardrobe consultants, um, I'm, and all I, I told her, gee, it's so pro-woman of you. And yet Conway stood by as Trump launched smears against another woman for three days, literally standing by during the president's presser on Thursday. Forgive us if we don't take the girl who cried wolf seriously or her chronically complaining boss who can't deal with a woman outmaneuvering him. Joining me now to discuss CNN political commentator Mary Catherine Ham, MK, I will get to Kellyanne, but first on Trump. Pelosi clearly got under his skin. What did you make of him explicitly saying she's lost it mentally? Well, first of all, I am not what I once was, but I am as good once as I ever was, <laughs> in the words of the great Toby Keith. Um, so, look... <laughs> Oh, it's so Trump. Um, you know, I think she did get under his skin a little bit. As usual, there's a way that he could have a politically advantageous week where he could yeah. uh, talk about infrastructure. As always, it's infrastructure week, and then we end up doing this. Um, right. But in the end, I do wonder if it actually ever hurts him. Like, I, uh-huh. I, it is a given that this is offensive and stupid and silly, yeah. ridiculous behavior from the president of the United States of America. His approval rating is... Or, low 40s and has remained so except for like a dip here and there basically the entirety of his presidency um so the question is whether a week from now this matters yeah and to that point i mean remember back trump supporters spread conspiracy theories about hillary clinton's health in 2016 i mean this might actually you know work for uh, i mean for for folks in his in his base um he will not suffer Yes, and, and, and Pelosi, I think partly because she is an effective leader of the Democrats in the House, remains a fruitful target uh, for Republicans. And I don't mean in this kind of trashy yeah. way. I just mean as a, as a political adversary. She's from San Francisco, but she's smarter than the, uh, the parody of her, right? She is a San Francisco liberal, but she's the one who's told the Democratic caucus, hey, like, let's just keep beating up on him and investigating and not actually impeach, which is like yeah. actually not a bad strategy. And that yeah. is what's bugging him. And I will say one thing, though, and I do, I do not at all give him a pass for attacking her this way. Folks who have attacked his mental health for many years yep. cannot all of a sudden be like, if you've been 25th Amendmenting all over the place, you can't be like, oh, my gosh, who would talk about mental no, health? No, I think it's that's like, a really it's a good point. Yes. For sure. For sure. He is he is not immune to this, you know, uh, kind of criticism. For as well. sure. 
Um, Moderate women, let's talk about them. They'll be an important voting block in 2020. They already have some issues with the president's behavior and let him know it in the 2018 midterms. Add to that what even some pro-life conservatives have called extreme abortion laws in southern states. And now Trump's smears against Pelosi. How is the GOP looking for women in 2020? (laughs) Why would you even ask me that question? Uh, (laughs) No, look, I I think that I'm sort of like a persuadable voter now. I'm pretty independent. I'm center right. I'm undecided, just as I was in 2016. Um, And it seems to me there's like an alienation off going on, like where Mm. people want to alienate moderate women voters. And again, this is not giving Trump a pass. It's just like they seem to swirl like two eddies against each other of just craziness. And one of the one of the reasons that Trump's approval rating stays where it is, I think, is because the 2020 Democrats are often dragged into the uh, their Twitter base, which, as we know, with Trump, the mm-hmm. base is not going to get you everywhere. Same with the left. If you start fighting those fights that they want you to passionately fight, you're going to get further and further away from Midwestern voters, mm-hmm. from some moderate women. Um, but it goes without saying that, like, Trump ain't helping here. No. So let's talk about Kellyanne. Um, Where do I begin? Uh, I've noted on this show and elsewhere that crying sexism anytime she feels slighted or cornered is really it's a go to move of hers. Um, Just a brief list. Dana Bash, Chris Cuomo, Anderson Cooper. Kellyanne called them all sexist either during or after interviews with her. She called Maisie Hirono sexist for attacking Brett Kavanaugh. Cory Booker is sexist for running against women candidates. Um, It's so stupid, for lack of better word. But I'm also old enough to remember when conservatives used to hate exactly this sort of thing. Well, so and you and what's I've, changed? Yeah, you and I both know that sexism against, well, women in the public eye, women in general, and center right, center right of center women is a real thing. Yeah. But here's the problem with all of this stuff is crying wolf. And so yeah. now uh, the folks in the White House have decided that they're going to play that game as well. Yeah. And it, it's, this is part of the trade or this is the part of the deal that people made when they voted for Trump. And I didn't want to be a part of it, which is... We're just going to play by their rules now, and we're going to make them play by their rules, and everything's going to be an identity politics war for us as well. Yeah, and yeah. I don't want to be that person, um, yeah. but that is that is the that's the style of the Trump White House, and it will be, continue to be the style of the Trump campaign. And a lot of conservatives and female conservatives will be like, I'm not sure I want to play this game. Uh, well, here's hoping. Uh, Mary yeah. Catherine Hand, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate oh. it. Happy Memorial Day. Glad to be here. Weekend. Yeah. Um, Still to come, I'll speak to a retired general who thinks that even entertaining the idea of pardoning accused war criminals is both dangerous and immoral. But first, stick around to hear about my candidate of the week. That's next. While Joe Biden's long buildup to announcing his candidacy for president sucked up a lot of oxygen the past few weeks, one candidate has been slowly, steadily making some positive headway. Elizabeth Warren, our candidate of the week, is enjoying some more positive press coverage than she did before. The average of polls over the last 10 days show Warren is sitting third behind Biden and Sanders. 
So is it just a good week or should Biden and Bernie be worried? Joining me to discuss this is former DNC chairman, former Vermont governor, Howard Dean. Um, governor, polling from last year actually closely matches polling from the last 10 days. The positioning of the candidates has actually remained pretty static. Nonetheless, I'm sure Elizabeth Warren would prefer this week to some other not so great ones she's had. What would you say about her ability to stick despite, you know, 23 other candidates? I think it's very good. Uh, you know, when somebody uh, announces, they tend to get knocked down. Uh, the press uh, builds them up until they announce, and then they really let them have it with a bunch of stories that aren't very nice, that people leak to them in many cases, and so forth and so on. Uh, and that pretty much is a rule for everybody who announces whether, whether the first or last. Uh, Elizabeth got through that, and so she she got knocked down, and now she's building herself back up again. That's a very good sign. That mm. that's a ritual you have to get through, and she's gone through it. So she's I think she's established as the real deal. I think you could argue, and maybe disagree, but I, I think I think um, it's not controversial to say that Sanders and Warren are fighting over similar constituencies, and I think if they continue to split the progressive vote. Without one of them dropping out, they're probably just going to hand Biden the nomination. Should one of them at some point tell the other one, hey, you got to you got to sit this one out? Well, I think we have a fundamental difference of opinion about uh, why people vote. I actually don't believe people vote on issues very much. I know Democrats, especially well-educated ones, always like to think we do. OK, uh, but we use we, we vote on emotion just like every other voter does. We just think uh, and issues become proxies for our emotions. So it is true that Bernie's voters and Elizabeth voters and some other of the voters uh, for other candidates as well could be classified as progressives. But I think it's really more of a feeling about the candidate and whether you uh -huh. like the candidate or don't like the candidate or respect the candidate. So I'm not so sure that both hmm. these candidates can't do well and survive with, with each, each one of them in the race. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Warren, as you know, has been hammering policy, which is very refreshing, um, even if you disagree with her solutions. Do you think, though, that that might put her in a tough spot in a general election, committing so early to, you know, really granular, progressive policies? I don't think so, because I think Bernie would have done well last time around against Trump also. Um, again, it's, I think the strength of Elizabeth is actually very similar to the strength of Bernie, not so much in their progressive politics, although uh, for people who consider themselves progressives, that matters. It's because she says what she thinks and she's out front about it. People like that a lot. I saw there was an article the last couple of weeks where she went in front of a bunch of Trump voters and they came away saying, hey, we really like her. Well, it's not hmm. because they're on the left. It's because they like the fact that she's outspoken, uh, mm -hmm. which is also what they like about Bernie. Well, I mean, we should acknowledge that she also doesn't poll very well in her home state and her unfavorables, um, unfavorability is high, higher than most of the other candidates. Does that worry you? Should it should it worry Democrats? Uh, look, it always is a worry when unfavorability is higher. Uh, I have to say that part of it is sexism among uh, the, the voters. Uh, most of the negative uh, opinions of Elizabeth Warren are not coming from Democrats. They're coming from other people that are polled. Um, and, uh, you know, that the, the, the Trump faction and partly is successful because they're sexist. Uh, I mean, Hillary Clinton, there's no question there was an anti-woman vote in the last uh, election. Uh, in 2016. So I, I'm not uh, terribly worried about Elizabeth's negatives. Uh, I think most of those are coming from people who weren't going to vote for the Democrat anyway. 
Um, well, let me just press you on that before we go. Trump's unfavorables are also very, very high. I'm, on, on, on what basis are you suggesting it's just sexism against Elizabeth Warren? Well, it's, it's, no, I mean, Trump is incompetent and he's a crook. I mean, there's a reason for his high. I mean, most people don't like the president of the United States to be a crook. Okay. I mean, to, to be clear, his unfavorables were high from the beginning. So were Hillary Clinton's um, because she also made some very terrible decisions um, to a lot of voters. I'm just not sure that we can assume because she's a woman, her unfavorables are because of sexism. I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily proved because I said it, but it's not unlikely uh, because it is, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in this country who are not ready for a woman president, and this is the kind of thing that seeps hmm. in to this. I personally don't think there's enough of those people to cost us the election. I would be, uh, you know, we have uh, four or five very capable women candidates running yeah. uh, for president out of the 24, and I'd yeah. be delighted to see one of them uh, get Whoever. the nomination. Uh, but I do think their negatives are a little partly higher because people are afraid of a strong women, women, particularly on the other side of the aisle. Hmm. Former presidential candidate, Governor Howard Dean, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'll have more on the Democratic Party's 2020 goals and even throw some math at you. That's next. Democrats sometimes outthink ourselves a little bit on this topic of what's called electability. Sometimes we pick somebody who is less inspiring that we think will also be less risky, and we wind up getting somebody that's neither. Hmm. Wonder who he's talking about, <clears throat> Hillary Clinton. South Bend mayor and presidential contender Pete Buttigieg at a town hall meeting in New Hampshire yesterday hit on an issue that the Democratic Party is wrestling with in this primary. 23 Democrats are vying to take on President Trump, so the internal and external calculations about who can and who should rise to that challenge and how are intense. Some say electability is bogus, meaningless, not a thing. Others say it's a factor, but not the only factor. And others say, screw electability, let's go for purity. So which idea is right? Well, this week, math weighs in. In his 538 blog this week, Nate Silver says the numbers suggest moderate Democrats have higher favorability ratings among general election voters, lending some cred to the notion that ideological extremes are less electable. But before Joe Biden starts measuring the drapes, let's talk it over with my all-star panel, CNN political analyst Ryan Lizza, CNN political commentator and senior columnist at The Daily Beast, Matt Lewis, and Democratic strategist Basil Smeichel. So, Basil, I start with you because yes. we have talked about this before, and yes. you have said electability is subjective. It is. Sure. But shouldn't things like a candidate's favorability or unfavorability, shouldn't that matter? Those things absolutely do matter okay. because something, especially like unfavorability, right? That's a that's a hurdle you have to get over. Yeah. And sometimes your personality, your policies, may not do that. People may not may just not like you. Yes. But that but electability is something that's more nebulous. Fluid. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. very fluid. And the truth is, and I think one of the things that's reflected in the polls is that yes, extremes do extreme positions do frighten people. Yeah. And Biden specifically is a known quantity, and that's why you see the numbers the way they are. They can change. Mm. But the fact is, people know Biden, and there's a comfort level there that I think is a proxy for electability. Ryan, I think to Mayor Pete's point, we can, in both parties, overvalue candidates who seem less risky. 
Mm-hmm. And the, then we get someone who's less inspiring. I think Republicans might have done that with Mitt Romney. I think Democrats did not do that with Obama, and it and it um, it paid off. Yeah. Do you think that's yeah. kind of the point he's trying to make here? Yeah. Look, that's a great that's a great test case. In two thousand eight, someone with the name Barack Hussein Obama and just an unknown, a, really. A, well, yeah, and a, and a black or man, a little known, never yeah. been a, a major party nominee. It was a huge uh, risk. Right. The voters are primary voters. You know, pundits, primary voters, anyone. We're we're not very good at like telling who's electable, right? Yeah. Nobody thought Donald Trump was electable, right. and he's, I definitely he's, did he's not. now president. Yeah. <laughs> and I also think there's one other problem with this nebulous concept of electability, especially yeah. as the press and pundits often often use it. It sometimes is a stand-in for white guy, right? uh-huh. because right. who most presidents in our history, the ones who were elected, yeah. were white men. So. I think, you know, if you're Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. or, 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 or Gillibrand or Cory Booker um, and you are not a traditional, uh, what, what seems like the traditional uh, president, yeah. which most of them have been uh, white, white men, then maybe somehow you or a gay man like like uh, like uh, people to judge, yeah. judge, then that that means you're not electable. So I think we have to be very careful with that word because it, ex- it sometimes excludes uh, in a, a diversifying country. It exclude can exclude a lot of people. But Matt, there's also a thing called math. Yeah. And <laughs> you have to look at the demographics of the country. You have to look at the way people have voted in the past. Right. I mean, isn't that kind of part of predicting what's going to happen? Well, look, and I think, number one, Matt, numbers don't lie. I mean, it's possible numbers will change, right? It's possible that, that somebody will gain traction. Yeah. But uh, I think you you had a very good point about, about Joe Biden. Like, not only is Joe Biden somebody who is seen as temperamentally moderate, not only is he way ahead in the polls right now, but he is a known commodity. So just like Donald Trump, and this is what Donald Trump had going for him last time, is that he has this name ID. And mm-hmm. honestly, there's almost nothing Joe Biden Biden could do that is going to bring him down. Joe Biden can't commit a gaffe that's going to cost mm. him his likability. Right. Elizabeth Warren has and did, you know, can and has done that. Yes. But Joe Biden is pretty mm. much a, a known commodity. Yeah. Well, We're, I mean, the never the, underestimate the, Biden's ability to commit a gaffe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we will test that, I'm sure, multiple times. Um, Basil, Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams made a point this week of saying that Democrats won in 2018 albeit not her, um, by actually sort of leaning into identity politics. Yes, yes. And um, that, to me, true, but would seem to then disqualify Biden, Bernie, Beto, maybe even Buttigieg. Yeah. Uh, what do you do about that? So I don't have a problem with identity politics like others do, because to me, um, identity politics is your lived experience. If you're African-American, mm-hmm. a woman, a veteran, a farmer. And what makes a good campaign is trying to connect the, the connective tissue that unites all of those groups. Unfortunately, a lot of it now is in the pejorative because it's, uh, again, a proxy for sort of minority voters. And a lot of people don't like that. But I think if you're going to be a good campaign, if you're going to be Joe Biden, mm-hmm. if you're going to be Kamala Harris, whoever's out there, the way to do it is to try to get people to understand how we're more alike than we are different. But well, there's yeah, nothing wrong I mean, with being different problem, either. The and I don't think it's necessarily politics, mi- uh, uh, focusing in on minorities. I think you could argo- argue Trump played on identity politics as well. To me, it just seems right. a politics of division and playing on people's divisions. And I don't, I don't, I don't love that as a project. Yeah. Well, the pro- but think about just very quickly. Sure. Think about why Obama was very good because he found a way to unite the country. Coalition the, building. The, right, right. Exactly. But the problem but without eschewing identity, identity politics, politics is, completely. 
completely. Right. The problem with identity yeah. politics is it means different things to different people. But the thing that scares me is identity politics being predictive. In other words, if you're mm -hmm. a white man, you will always right. vote Republican. Right. If you're a black man, you will always vote Democrat. The problem with that is then ideas don't matter. Persuasion is non-existent. Right. And so right now, Democrats are basically mm -hmm. saying we want Joe Biden. Even in South Carolina, African-Americans are saying, I think that's a great sign. And also, it should go the other way as well. Final word, Ryan. Ryan. I ahead. mean, look, the reason we have identity politics historically in this country is because people, based on their identity, were excluded, right? Mm -hmm. So when you are excluded based on your identity, you're going to band together with people of the same identity mm -hmm. to, to make a case for, for the rights you should have. So we have a long history of identity politics. It's as old Thank as America. You. Thank you. It's horrible. Oh, and fine Donald Trump did it, and <laughs> Thank it's not you. good. No. Okay, Ryan, Matt, Basil, you'll all have to come back. We'll do this again, I'm sure, a thousand more times. <laughs> Thanks for spending some of your holiday weekend with me. Uh, when we come back, our commander in chief may be disrupting military order. That's the opinion of one retired general. I'll speak to him next. In the red file tonight, President Trump sparked a flood of outrage from unexpected corners when his Justice Department's pardon office asked the military for case files for at least two service members accused of war crimes including Navy SEAL Special Operations Chief Edward Gallagher and Army Major Matt Goldstein. From retired generals to former diplomats and human rights groups, the idea of pardoning soldiers accused of shooting unarmed civilians and killing prisoners was met with outrage. While he'd wanted to issue these pardons on this Memorial Day weekend, he said just yesterday he will wait until after their trials to make the final decision. Joining me to discuss this is retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. Um, General, you wrote a really powerful com column for CNN about this, and you called these pardons immoral. Tell me why. All military personnel, I see, are part of the profession of arms. And as part of that profession, there are values and ethos and ethics associated with the things we do. Uh, military personnel do not abuse detainees or POWs. They do not take property. Uh, they don't harm non-combatants, and they do all they can in a free society, soldiers in a free society, to uh, limit the damage they do when they're executing violent operations, which combat is. Uh, to have someone say that you're going to pardon someone who has violated those rules, those morals, those ethics, in my view, and in many other soldiers' view, is immoral. In addition, and I don't think, you know, um, you'd find much argument on that, but in addition, is, is there a practical concern that it disincentivizes soldiers to yeah, uphold does. rules of engagement in the Geneva Convention and all of that when the President of the United States is pardoning soldiers for, for disregarding them? Yeah, it certainly does. And, you know, we train uh, heavily uh, all new soldiers and soldiers who are going into combat, all military forces, I should say, uh, to obey the rules of engagements, the laws of land warfare, uh, to understand the ethos of combat. And as tough as it is, you have to train them because you're, you're constantly placed in situations where you're making decisions and uh, it's tough. It's emotionally and, and, and psychologically draining in some cases where you yeah. have to make decisions. And unfortunately, when you even have a uh, hanging a pardon over someone's head, you get soldiers in the field questioning, hey, mm -hmm. is all that training worthwhile? Why, why am I doing mm -hmm. that? If, if I violate this, I'm, someone's just going to pardon me later on. And yeah, that does uh, contribute to indiscipline in units and a lack of teamwork yeah. and trust. 
Where do you think this is coming from? I, I know the president watches Fox News, and, and there's reporting that at least one commentator there was lobbying him to do this. But, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to make any sense. To what advantage is the president contemplating this? What's behind this? Well, yeah, I don't know. But all I can say is it seems to be part of a p pattern. Because remember, there have been many times in the past where the president has advocated torture. He's endorsed torture. He has said to kill terrorist families uh, on several times during the campaign. He has talked about taking property from other countries as part of, uh, you know, the, the spoils of war. So this seems to be a pattern. And it also seems to be something that people who have never been to combat think are, is the tough way to approach it. These are what soldiers do. Well, I got newsflash. No, they don't. Uh, well, we train to do exactly the opposite. And unfortunately, people who don't understand that might think this is the right way to go about it. It's the tough guy approach. Uh, well, the president's in Japan, and I don't know if you've seen, but he just sent a tweet about how North Korea fired off some, quote, small weapons, which doesn't disturb him as president, but maybe disturbs his hosts in Japan. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, to be honest with you, there, there are so many things he says uh, versus being placed in a situation where he has, has to actually act. I'm not even sure what that means. Uh, he, I, I don't think he should be looking at it from the standpoint of imminent danger. He should be looking at it from the standpoint of how is it affecting what his strategy and his policy is. Yeah. Since we don't know what his strategy and his policy is, we don't know. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's not a case of imminent danger. It's actually what is working and what's not working. General Hurtling, I really appreciate your time on Memorial Day weekend. Thanks so much. Thanks for your service. Thank you, Essie. We'll be back after a quick break. I'm sure you've heard about the over-the-top ways some employers are trying to keep their employees happy and healthy. On-site massage and meditation rooms, rock climbing walls and game parlors, five-star cafeteria food, and even beer on tap. Here in our new digs at Hudson Yards, we've got some pretty fancy bells and whistles. I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of obsessed with the sparkling water tap in every kitchen. But you know what I'd take over all the cool new perks? One degree warmer on the thermostat. You feel me, ladies, I know you do. It's an ages-old battle of the sexes. Who controls the office temperature? For decades, it's been men. Most modern offices use climate control systems based on the metabolic rate of an average 40-year-old man. That temperature is almost five degrees cooler than a woman's ideal temp, which is why you'll often see us huddled over portable space heaters, wrapped in shawls and blankets like mummies, and sipping piping hot tea in the middle of summer. As my husband is fond of saying, you can always add layers, I can only take so many off. Well, there's a reason to crank up that office thermostat. A new study shows women are in fact more productive when the office temperature is a tick warmer. Science. In this latest study published by the journal PLOS1, women scored better on math and verbal tests when the thermostat was set to higher temperatures. Just upping the temperature by one degree Celsius was linked with a 1.76% increase in the number of math questions solved correctly by women. This makes total sense to me. I am terrible at math and also always cold. That's what I call causal. I bet if I were warmer, I'd be doing equations on the windows, like in A Beautiful Mind and Goodwill Hunting and every other movie where no one seems to ever have any paper. But the bottom line is, if you employ women, you may want to consider boosting our productivity and your bottom line by making the office just a degree or two 
warmer. Don't worry, guys. I think you'll survive. Okay, quick programming note tomorrow night. See what happens when victims and offenders of violent crimes meet face-to-face on the new CNN original series, The Redemption Project with Van Jones. That's tomorrow night at 9, followed by United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell at 10 p.m. CNN Newsroom is next. Stick around. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.